This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Welcome to For the Shire by the Shire. Each week, we speak to property and finance professionals working in and around the Sutherland Shire. Discover insider tips and tricks from the Shire's leading experts on how to get ahead in today's market. Introducing your host, Nathan Smith, the Director and Senior Mortgage Broker at the award-winning Birdie Wealth. Welcome back to another episode of For the Shire, By the Shire. Today, I'm joined by Gareth Woodham, who's an Affiliate Director at Suburbanite. He's been a buyer's agent now for the last five years with uh, his experience as a valuer, bringing a lot of value in that area. He's been a valuer for more than 20 years now. And we're going to talk about how those two different professions fit together and how the insight he's had as a valuer has helped him become a better buyer's agent and hear his journey from when he started out till today. Gareth, thanks for coming along. Thanks, Nathan. Good to be here. I want to start all the way back to... uh, Heading out of high school, where did we where did we go to from there, and how did you land yourself in a role as a valuer? Well, um, I finished high school in in 1991, and so we were heading into a recession, and so the obvious smart thing to do is go do a property degree at uni. The marks were pretty low to get in at the time because no one was interested in property at all. Um, but it was a really good time to be studying because you, you know obviously you didn't want to be out in the workforce in that time. Um, so uh, went through that for a few years, and I, I, I worked. Uh, most of the time I was at university as well, um, quite fortunately. And then, um, when I graduated in 1999, I, I had a, um, I had a reasonably good job at, uh, Westpac Bank, uh, in their subsidiary AGC Finance. And I was working in, um, in consumer credit there in the, the risk, um, credit risk division and, uh, just looking at all the, the systems and, and how to modernize those systems because they were working on some pretty archaic systems at the time. Um, and it was, it was a, a good challenging job. Um, and I'd worked my way up over the, the sort of the, th- I think it was there for three years, um, while I was studying full time as well. And then just, um, one weekend I was helping paint somebody's house and, uh, conversation came around. What do you, what do you do? Oh, I work at, work at Westpac. Oh yeah. Where'd you go to uni? Oh, I did, um, did this property degree. Oh, my, my dad's got a valuation company. He's a property valuer. And oh, that's interesting. He's, um, his dad rang me on Monday. Um, I looked around the office. There was about 40 or 50 men in there that were all grey hair, grey skin. It was grey office. It was the most miserable place in Sydney at the time. And I thought, well, I'll give this a crack. So I got the train out to Parramatta that evening and uh, had an interview and came in on the Tuesday morning and chucked it all in and um, became a property valuer. And I, I cut my teeth in the, the western suburbs of Sydney. So I was living living in Oatley at the time. And it was a bit of a drive to get out to Parramatta to the office. And then from there, you'd head all the way up to the top of the Blue Mountains. And I was this is 1999, 2000. Um, there was a bit happening in the property market. We just brought in the, the GST. And so then they developed all the, the stimulus for, for property to, um, to help, uh, construction move along. And so it was a really dynamic, uh, market at the time. The non-bank lenders were just kicking off. You had Rams and Aussie and, uh, Wizard Home Loans that were really stirring the banks up. And so it was a, it was a, it was a pretty exciting time to, to, to get amongst it. And I, I did that for a few years. Um, Developed my, my skills there, primarily in residential mortgage valuation work. And then I went and did a few years contracting and then I took a job in uh, a valuation firm in Melbourne. So it was a bit uh, light on for work in Sydney at the time and I had an opportunity to, to, to make a clean break. And in 2003, um, I took a job with, um, WBP valuers. They were, they were called at the time WBP valuers and it was a, it was a team of 12, 
Uh, I was one of one of the twelve down in um, North Melbourne in, the, in this little office down there. And same thing, um, working through the the north and the northwest of, of Melbourne, valuing um, primarily residential, but then a lot of commercial and industrial because there's some big industrial precincts out there. And uh, a few years later, they asked me they, the, the business was growing and they wanted to open a, an office in Sydney. And they said, "Oh, mate, you're from Sydney. You can get back up there." Now I'd settled really nicely into. Uh, the Melbourne lifestyle. I had a had a flat in St Kilda. It was a pretty good place to be for a bloke in his thirties. But I um I saw the opportunity and and moved back to Sydney. So for the next couple of years, I grew WBP Property, their Sydney office, and I started out of the bedroom uh, with a team of one and um, grew that with a a network of contractors. Uh, every day I was out building relationships with with mortgage brokers and and mortgage managers because that was the nature of the business at the time. And I I, I grew that team to cover all of Sydney. Um, and then I went out again and uh, worked for myself for a few years. I, I, um, a, a couple of years after that, I got asked to come back to WBP because they'd had a really successful run with their. They'd launched a buyer's agency in Melbourne, and um, it was it was it really got a lot of traction. Um, the CEO and, and became the chairman of WBP, Greville Papst. He got a he got a really good um, uh, media opportunity on the block. He was one of the, the judges on the block for a few seasons. And um, so that really generated a lot of interest in, in having a buyer's advocate and um, obviously brought a lot of inquiry to the, to the company in Melbourne. So they were quite successful. Um, and so they asked me to come back and, and uh, build that business for them in Sydney. Um, I did that for uh, about 12 months, but then I kept getting pestered by Anna Porter from Suburbanite. She was very... Um, she's very interested in what, what she knew about me and um, she uh, wined and dined me for, for six months uh, before convincing me to take the step across and um, so I joined Suburbanite yeah, it must be must have been about uh, four four years ago and um, yeah that, that, that was a that was a really great um, business to be involved in um, a really good team very uh, young and dynamic and really enthusiastic um, they were shire based and um, but had a had a, had a really good uh, business buying property for clients around the the, the south of Sydney and the in the Illawarra and as those markets really started to pick up, um, they saw saw greater opportunity and looked into state, and then that's how the the suburbanite model was was fully developed of buying investment properties around the country for clients wherever they can see the best opportunity. Um, it's a team of property valuers, so um, it, was, it was for me it was just the the, the perfect synergy of the skills that I developed as a property valuer to then really um, uh, use those instead of helping the banks make their their credit decisions. It's to help the the clients make the best credit decision on the property that they're buying. So that it's all about if you're investing in property, you want to have the best property. And so it was it was really great to be part of that team, and and then that's developed from there from there on to. Now having a franchise with the Suburbanite brand, so I've got run my own buyer's agency within uh, the Suburbanite umbrella and also um, very much focused on the property valuation as well because that's where I really sharpen my, my property skills. So taking those skills as a valuer over many years mm-hmm. and moving across to that buyer's agency, um, we have spoken to buyer's agents on this show but never one that was a valuer previously. What are those transferable skills that you think give you a point of difference between another buyer's agent? Look, um, the obvious one that, that people look to is they say, well, you'll obviously know what the property is worth. And look, that's, that's, that's a given. Um, uh, we've got the technical, uh, skills and, and, and tools to be able to determine exactly what a property is worth. However, far and away, the, um, the, the most important, uh, attribute that we bring as property valuers to the, to the, the, the buying process is knowing 
the right property to buy in the first place. You can be the world's best negotiator. You can get a, a better discount than anybody else of a property, but if it's not the right one for the client at that time, then it is the wrong property to buy. And no matter how good a price you get it, it's a dud. So the, absolutely the most important thing is using those those um, risk assessment uh, tools. So when you when you look at a valuation for a, for a mortgage, it's got a, a risk matrix on the front page that the lender pays very close attention to. From our perspective, that's what we pay very close attention to. It's it's the risks that are the compromises that are associated with that property, and they're all reasons why you wouldn't buy it, and you just move on to the next one. It interests me when clients want to proceed with a property that the bank has uh, said has a high level of risk to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a reason why a bank doesn't like a particular property. If, if, if they liked it, they would go ahead and, and they'll lend the money, right? They make money by lending money. But if a bank sees a red flag, you've got to see that as a warning and say, well, well maybe there is something wrong with it. Now, a buyer's agent has uh, a cost associated with using uh, a buyer's agent. And a lot of yeah. people balk at that fee. But one thing I think was interesting there and, and something that I see when I've used a buyer's agent myself is that, to me, it's almost a level of insurance as well. It's a it's a third party. It's an objective opinion on exactly what the property looks like. And not only looking at what you should be looking at in a property, but probably almost more importantly, what you shouldn't be looking at in a property. So coming in with the valuer's eyes and looking at it, what are some common mistakes that the everyday buyer when they're looking at a property is missing when they're going through an open home? They can be really simple. Like they're just, they're not paying attention to the fact that it is on a busy road. They might see an opportunity to get into a suburb because it's the one where they want to be in, but they're buying on the busy road because that's where their budget limits them. That's that's not a great investment idea. Your, your reason it is cheap is because it is not, it is compromised the property. When the market is strong, it all it lifts all boats. The the rising tide will lift all boats. But when the market is not so strong, which happens from time to time, property moves in cycles in Australia all the time. Um, when the tide goes out on those, they're the ones that are left stranded. Working as a valuer through the GFC, I saw this firsthand. I was doing up to 20 um, mortgagee and possession valuations a month. So I was doing at least one every day every working day of the month where you would you would get, get the instructions, they post the keys to you, you drive out there and you'd have a look at it and you go, why did anyone buy this in the first place? Because when the when the market changes when when and it coincides with your circumstances changing, you've got to make a tough decision. Are we going to sell the property? Are we going to move somewhere else? And you find out that the market doesn't support what you are on it because there's 10 or 20 or 30 properties in that suburb for sale and there are five buyers. You don't want to be the, the 28th, 29th, 30th property in terms of quality. You want to be in the top five. And when when times are tough, when your your personal circumstances are tough, when you have to sell it when the market isn't right, that is the worst perfect storm of, of you know, negative consequences. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars loss. So in the GFC, the property market in, in Sydney, it, it retracted a little bit. It retracted around 5% uh, uh, broadly uh, across the board. That was not evenly spread across suburbs and it definitely was not spread evenly across property type. So I was valuing properties that 18 months ago had been bought for 30% more than what they were worth today. And the, the agents were having a hell of a time trying to sell them at that price. So it's it's all about identifying the 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 compromises in a property. Um, so things like busy road, things like um, having a, a flood affectation or being near a flight path 
or you know, you know it's, it's quite obvious on the section 10.7 the old 149 certificate in a, in a property contract it will it will identify the zoning um, and uh, and so your solicitor will alert you to that in the conveyancing process but it, it doesn't tell you the zoning of the property over the back or or the one behind that um, it's about looking around and knowing what's happening in that market the things that will negatively that could potentially negatively infect that property if there's a if there's a there's a chance that something could go wrong walk away there's plenty of more properties out there especially when you're looking for investment returns it's a little bit different if you're a home buyer and you really want to live in that location but even then you need to have your eyes wide open and make know that you're making a completely informed choice and you're not you know you're not going in there thinking everything's rosy you're weighing up the opportunity cost of those types of properties as as you said Nathan when you when you get um, valuations back from the bank and they've got a, a risk rating of a three or a four or a five for the you know um, for in the specific um, areas of, of concern, um, you need to, you know, the, the client needs to know about that, but that's more importantly, that, that is attended to very closely by the credit department in the bank. And then the mortgage insurer will probably put a red line through the whole thing if it gets to them anyway, because these are, you know, buildings full of actuaries that make really sensible decisions based on loads and loads of data. If they see issues, they're not prepared to lend their money on it. So it doesn't really make sense why you should use your own money to, to buy that as well. Yeah, so the best property in the suburb isn't the cheapest property. There's a reason why a particular property has a premium on it, and it, it's you know it's lot size, yep. it's slope, it's oh, there's a whole street, yeah, there's a whole yeah, matrix of, of things that that come into determining uh, what a, what a good property is, and it is specific for that location. So um, if you're if you're buying a, a a house in Kellyville in the northwest of Sydney. You're not going to get anything. You would not buy anything less than four bedrooms and two bathrooms and a double garage. It would be a foolish property to buy because the market doesn't support three bedroom, one bathroom houses in that location. Whereas if you're in Balmain and you were looking at a, a three bedroom, one or two bathroom, parking would be a nice, nice to have, but it's not, not in any way necessary in that location because the market doesn't require that in that, in that location. So it is about looking at the specifics of a location and how a property performs within that market and having that, that understanding of, of what drives the market decisions in those locations for, for whatever reasons people are living there and the, and the lifestyle and amenities that, that drive them to that location versus, you know, in the example of, of Balmain, you'd, you'd be hard pressed getting a freestanding house for less than $3 million. Whereas in, in Kellyville, you'd probably get it for half that and it'd be on a, a block of land that'd be five or six times the size. It's an interesting thing you've brought up there about the market, and I mean, it's a term you would get asked daily. I know mm. I get asked daily is how's the market, how's the market? And the, the question is which market you're talking about because the Kellyville market's very different Absolutely. to the Balmain market. It's very different to Sutherland Shire. Yep. Um, and it's the same argument and people talk about should I be buying a house or a unit? Well, does it depend on the market too? Yep. Um, absolutely. So, um, in different times in the property cycle, and also in the you, you're looking at the development cycle, we go through big booms and in construction in, in unit developments. And so, if you're buying in at the start of one of those big booms, um, it takes a long time for that that tail to run out. And so, there'll be buildings coming online years after the supply has been met. And so, you could be settling on it. You could be buying a property off the plan today. Uh, in two to three years' time, you could be settling on it, and you, it seemed like a good thing because you know, it was the only new building in that suburb that was being built. But three years later, there's all these buildings coming out of the ground, and there's there would there's, there, there'd be hundreds or thousands of of more or less identical properties. And so, when yours hits the market, it was this great investment decision at the time, and you had a projected rental of X dollars per week. But if everyone else is hungry for for a tenant at that time, and 
you know, in different times in the economic cycle, there's 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 good times and there's bad times to be a landlord. It, it's maybe you know, you've, you've got to you've got to look at what you're what you're buying and, and at what time in the market you're buying that property. If you're buying in a uh, if you're buying a unit in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and it's a um, it's in an older building on a you know, with a reasonably small number of units, say you know, less than a dozen units, and it's on a reasonable lot size and it's in a good location, proximate to all the features of that that nice suburb, yes, you're going to pay a premium for it because it's in a very nice suburb. But that premium is very much protected because they don't have the, aside from, say, Bondi Junction, you don't have um, this flood of, of you know, really big towers of, of stock, just extra stock. It is a very simple year 10 economics discussion about supply and demand. And if you have more supply, the, the demand meets it at the lower point on the on the curve. And so your equilibrium is a lower price. It's 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 pretty pretty simple math there. Whereas houses, again, um, if you're buying them for investment purposes, there's times in the property cycle where you're never going to go near meeting anywhere near your your rental yield, uh, you know, your um, your outgoings, and so your rental yield would be exceptionally low if the market's strong. That's not saying it's a bad time to buy a property if the market's strong and it's a a, a, a good property, but your rental yield will be low and. Um, I've seen times when rental yields in Sydney are, are sub two percent uh, for detached houses, and I've seen them when they're higher than five percent. So it it is definitely time when there's uh, what your your circumstances can afford. Um, there's always if it's if it's a good property and you can afford to buy it, it is always a good time to buy it. Uh, but there's there's times when you can you can afford different things, and you don't get yourself in a situation where you're buying something because, oh, it's a good property, but if you can't afford to hold it because the rent is not there, then it's the wrong one for you. Perfect. And, yeah, and that's when we're starting to talk about getting financial planners and brokers involved and budgeting out and, Absolutely. and putting buffers in and saying, yeah. what if this happens? What if that happens? Can you still afford to hold yeah, it? Yeah, it's not just – it's not property is, mm. property is not a golden pass to, to wealth. You have to get it right and you have to get it right for your circumstances. Not like I'm not a financial advisor um, and I cannot give anyone financial advice, but you can – you can make sure that if they've got the numbers that they can support, then you can match that up with the right property for them, whether it is something to live in or, or to rent out. Obviously, the, the numbers are more important on, a, on an investment property. Um, but, yeah, you, you've, got to have, you've got to have your head screwed on. And, and you're, you're taking big gambles now. We're talking millions of dollars. These aren't you – know, my first property, when I bought it in 1992 or 93, I sold my – 10-year-old motorbike and my DJ equipment and I scraped together $4,500 and that was my deposit. Now, I don't know what sort of stereo equipment you'd have to sell today and what sort of motorbike you'd have to sell today to scratch together a deposit for a for a, just a, an apartment in Sydney, but it's going to be a lot more a than few, that. A few new cars I yeah. could be <laughs> yeah, 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 at yeah. the moment to get in. Um, look, let's talk uh, owner-occupiers versus investors coming to you to purchase a property on their behalf. So why are owner-occupiers engaging with a buyer's agent and what value can you bring to them? Um, owner-occupiers will tend to engage a buyer's agent for the, the, the time saving and the network that they have with the, the, the vendors of property and, and an understanding they're, they're less uh, focused, they're, they're personally less focused on the due diligence. Um, they're more focused on getting the job done. Um, and it's usually because they've had a lot of heart and soul poured into it over the last 
X months and they're, they're losing their mind. They've lost all their weekends and they're, they're, they're spinning their wheels and they're seeing things getting away from them. And then the first one that they looked at was the dream house, but they didn't act on that quick enough. And um, they, they, that's the, the typical sort of situation that I would see with home buyers. So they are looking for that, that time saving and the network that you can provide by getting them into properties before anyone else, getting them off market opportunities. Um, but also, obviously, from, from my perspective, it has to be about the due diligence. You've still got to make sure that they're getting a good quality property um, for their purposes. And don't be swayed by something else. If they, if they're, if they really need a four bedroom house, don't accept the three bedroom house because it's in, in a better, like if they can't afford to renovate and they can't, and it's not going to be the right one for them, if, then don't compromise on your objectives just because you, you get swayed by something shiny over here. It's about having that objective approach to get them the, the property that they, they really do need for their, um, their, their family. On the other side, looking for investors, people would, would approach, uh, a financial planner or, or, a, or a broker to get them the best uh, money advice and where they should should invest their money. If they made a decision to invest their money in property, they should be getting someone that provides them with the best property advice to execute that. As I touched on earlier, the property market in Australia moves in cycles. Um, uh, different different areas. Uh, just thinking about the capital cities, they all move in, in 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 cycles themselves at different speeds. So one cycle might last three years, one might last seven or eight years. Um, there are external factors that affect that cycle. For example, Perth had a real big run up with the mining boom a, a decade ago, and then it had a, a big sort of washout from that. Um, whereas uh, Sydney and Melbourne have a tighter cycle. Um, once people get a whiff that things might be a little bit more affordable, then they all pile back in again. Um, much more sensitive to interest rates in, in Sydney and Melbourne because you've got a higher price of entry, so your, your leverage is a lot higher. Um, so uh, if you're if you're in Sydney and you're um, you're thinking, well, I want to buy an investment property, and um, the, the time's right for me, I've got the funds available, my, my, um, I've got my mortgage in place, I've got my, my pre-approval to buy an investment property. Um, I might have the budget to buy something in Sydney, um, but. And you know, the market not be the right time to do it. So you want to look further afield and, and look in different states for different opportunities. Or you might go and sp- speak to your mortgage broker, look at your personal circumstances and, and decide that your budget of $600,000 is, is the, the, your, your sensible approach. That's that's where you, you should be spending. But you don't want to buy an apartment in the outer southwest of Sydney with your $600,000 because that's all you can afford. Um, well, you might know that that's not what you want to do, but I would very strongly urge against something like that, just getting what you can afford when there would be much better opportunities to buy something in a market that is performing strongly, getting a better rental yield, getting much better opportunity for growth, getting a more stable tenant, um, and, and um, just, just being a, an all-around better property decision um, and that's uh, that's where I would really guide someone to look outside of the suburb that they know in, because everyone's brought up in a location and they like it, they're familiar with it, or they've they've got friends or, or relatives somewhere, and they've got someone in their ear telling them, "Oh, it's really good. You know, all good things are happening here." That's not a that's not an approach over the all of Australia. Um, you need to to look a bit broader than your own backyard. There's there's none of this nonsense of oh, you've got to be able to touch it to know it's a good thing. Um, you don't walk up to the big digger that BHP's got um, or, or Rio Tinto's got and touch it and make sure it's you know, really digging the, the iron ore out of the ground for you for your, for your Rio Tinto shares. Likewise, you don't need to go up and touch the house that's paying the rent to, to pay off your mortgage for, for your retirement that way either. It is, it is very important to be solely focused on the investment outcomes when you're looking at an investment property. Don't look at 
what feels nice or what you know it's a it's a beautiful house i've always i've always loved that style or whatever if that style's not performing in the market well it's a really dumb investment yeah, so the property is just a vehicle to serve a purpose and get you an outcome. Yeah, if you're buying That's an investment property, you have to be cold blooded in your decision on on you know on the best financial outcome for you for you. It's uh, let's talk buyers agents. Let's talk investment specialists. We get all these terms used, mm-hmm. and it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So. What questions should somebody asking to make sure they're going with a qualified quality buyer's agent as opposed to somebody who's started selling off the plan property yesterday and is there to make a lot of commission? What questions do they need to ask? You need to know what's your experience as in education and experience in property. How qualified are you to advise me on the best property for me? Um, it's all well and good that you've had someone that's had a few wins in the in the property market over the last ten years. There's been a couple of lucky times to buy, and all you just by virtue of being in the market, you you would have leapt ahead on a couple, and that will um that by no means makes you an expert. That just means your timing was good at the time, but you haven't been through downturns. You haven't um, seen what a broader market what happens in a broader market. You've got a, you know, a survey sample of three properties. You can't call yourself an expert on on buying three properties for yourself that are, that have done well. Likewise, people that have uh, had their house for twenty years and and uh, knocked it down and built a duplex and sold it and called themselves a property developer. Well, not really, because they they got their land for twenty year old prices. If they unless they priced it at, at today's price, and well, we only made a margin of forty thousand dollars. I don't think property development is the thing for me. Um, you don't want to get people that are. I'm not, I'm not saying flash in the pan, but if they've got no experience outside their own lived experience, then they don't know property by any stretch. They they need to have that. Um, obviously, they need to be licensed as a buyer's agent, and you would want to have some tertiary qualifications around that, not simply doing the course. So. My university degree uh, to become, uh, uh, I received a Bachelor of Land Economics at UTS. Um, that was seven years of study. Um, and then I trained as a valuer for about five years or six years before I joined the Australian Property Institute. And that's the, the, the national professional body for property valuers. I sat my exam and my interview and I became a certified practicing valuer. Every single year after that, I have to maintain con- continuing professional development, going to seminars, doing online courses, um, all this ongoing training to maintain my status as a certified practicing valuer. Five years ago, when I got the opportunity to be a buyer's agent, it was eight hours, two evenings online, got my ticket. There's You're nothing going. There's yep. nothing to it to be a buyer's agent to get your license. Uh, it's a technical requirement to have a license, but the skills involved in getting it, uh, 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 a pulse and a $500 you know, credit card payment, uh, the rest of it, you, you just wing it. So there's, uh, there's, no, there's nothing, uh, uh, unfortunately, there's not, there's not much to it, and it's, uh, the barriers to entry are extremely low. Are they too low? Yeah, Way absolutely. Low. Yep. Especially, especially when you start leaning into the, as you said, the investment advisors. So it's absolutely heinous in Australia that we can have royal commissions about financial planning, about mortgage broking, about banks, and yet we've got people that can purport to be investment advisors because they've simply done their online course and got a buyer's agent's licence. And then, uh, as you said, flogging uh, um, house and land packages or, or off-the-plan apartments. Um, and, and in the, the most despicable case is when they say, don't worry about it. We don't charge you a cent. Um, we've done our due diligence on the developers. We found the one that, that, that uh, you know, they do the really good product um, and they they reimburse us for the service. So obviously we get paid, but we get paid by them. So it's no, nothing out of your pocket. 
Mm. And well, that's, that money does not, that is not free money. That yep. money comes exactly out of your pocket. If you've paid 50 grand too much for an apartment on the Sunshine Coast out the, the back of something, something waters, well, good luck selling it. They've got a marketing budget of, of hundreds of thousands of dollars to flog that development. They're doing everything they can to sell it all around Australia through financial planning networks, through seminars, through kiosks in Westfield, just handing out brochures and you know, using all sorts of tactics to get, you know, offering them free holidays. And you, you know, everyone's been to, on the Gold Coast when they've been offered to go to a seminar and learn about this and that. Well, that's because that property doesn't sell in its own market. You need to have a property that a local real estate agent can put a sign up out the front, put it on their website, and people will, you'll get a queue of people coming into that property. That's a, that's a property, and that, that'll get a price that it's worth. If you've got to flog that tower all the way around Australia internationally just to get some buyers on it, it doesn't stand up in the market. You go and try and sell it, you're not going to have hundreds of thousands of dollars of marketing budget to get rid of it. So they're, they're the, the most egregious examples of, of rorts that I've seen, and I've seen it, and I'm not exaggerating, I've seen it hundreds of times. I've conducted hundreds of valuations where they've come in hundreds of thousands of dollars less than the contract price because in the in the market within which that property sits, which is where the minute you, you own that property, that's exactly where you will be. You won't be in that brochure anymore. You won't have the display suite. You won't be able to do the, the, the flights up to the, you know, they used to do all the flights up to the Gold Coast and they probably do things similar now. You won't have any of that warning and dining. You've got a marketing budget of three grand if you, and, and you might have negotiated that down with your real estate agent. And he's going to sell it. He's got every buyer that comes there compares it to every other property that's for sale within that that area, that location, that precinct. And if there's a ton of them available for sale, because there's been a few other people sucked in just like you, um, some of them might be hungrier than you, and they'll sell it for less. And all that does is bring the market for that property down and down and down. Yep. And uh, so, some questions you need to be asking is how do you come across that? buyer's agent or how did you get in contact with them and, yep. and look for trails of commission getting paid yep. uh, back through yep. back So through a, a buyer's agent has to charge a fee because they're not a, a voluntary service. Um, they should charge um, – uh, personally, I charge a flat fee because that keeps me I, – I can I can talk to that all day. I'm quite confident with the fee that I charge. And also it takes away from the customer's mind, is this guy getting me pay a little bit more just so he can put a couple extra hundred bucks in his pocket? And I don't want to, I would rather have the discussion at the start of the, 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 the engagement and say, well, this is my fee. This is what I charge. This is the service that I offer. And most of that fee gets paid at the end. So you don't pay it until you get the outcome you're looking for anyway. Whereas if I'm, and, and when it's a good property, I will encourage you to buy it because it'll be the right one for you. But if you're in the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, this guy, you know, he's, he's come back to me. He wants more and more money. Well, for the, to buy the property, then he's only lining his pockets, and it might be a small amount, but that that niggling thought could distract someone from buying the property that's right for them. And I'd much rather take remove a, the conflict. Remove the conflict. Take a kick, and it might be a couple hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or something that's out of my pocket that I could have achieved by stretching my client to one hundred and ten percent of their budget. But I would much rather have a happy client that's happy today, but is also happier in two, five, ten years' time when their property is improving in value, not when they're thinking, oh, bloody hell, I mean, I've got some negative equity on, on this property. It's, I'm going to have to work for 10 years just to pay it back to what I paid for it. Whereas um, if you get on the right property, that'll leverage them into the next one and the next one. I've, I've got clients today that are still paying off the property, not paying off, that are still in a negative position on the purchase price they paid for properties more than 10 years ago that they've been purchased through investment advisors that, that have been introduced to them by trusted partners. Their accountant might have been meaning well. 
their their mortgage broker might have been meaning, meaning well, or their financial planner might have been meaning well um, to uh, to introduce them to this opportunity um, because the numbers that they had been preached stacked up. But if the if it's not a good property, if it's not fit for purpose in the market where you're buying it, property is immovable. It needs to suit the market where it sits. You can't move it somewhere else. Look, that's great. We've covered off on a lot of questions. My next question, I think you've almost answered, which was going to be, um, what would you change in your industry if you had the keys for the, the the kingdom for the day? What would you be changing? Is it is it that education piece? Is it the the ability to just whack a title on your LinkedIn profile and and head off and be a buyer's agent? Yep, I would I would look for for very much for education. So you need to be if you're. Um, a buyer's agent is a buyer's advocate. They need to be representing the buyer through the process. So they need to have um, not, an, not an industry body that protects them from you know, bad press. They need to have an education system and, a, and an industry body that, that, that raises the bar so that it weeds out these crumbs that, that are trying to, to, to rob, you know, re- really just honest, because they're, they're not robbing the sophisticated investors. Sophisticated investors, by definition, they you know, they got the, the well-paid advice. They've got the, the nows to get through this. They're not going to buy an apartment off the plan in some uh, development. They they might buy something off the plan, but that's because that they've uh, they they know something about that development that, that the average punter doesn't know. So you need to have a, a, a strictly enforced and, and a very high bar on on the educational requirements to enter into the industry. You need to have ruthless penalties for people that that act outside of the interest of their client. So if you engage a client, you need to be working one hundred percent from them. You cannot ever take a split commission from someone that's selling the property. If I was to take a commission, if I had negotiated with a real estate agent that every every buyer I bring to him. He slings me back twenty percent of the listing of the, the the money he earns from the sale. That's rife in the industry. Mm-hmm. I, I know yep. that that's rife. Yep. Um, if he was to sling me back twenty percent, would I show the client the best property in that suburb, or would I show them the ones that are in his window? Mm-hmm. That would be the only ones that I would show him because I'm getting an extra twenty percent on my uh, of the cut just because I've, I bought them through old mate who I've got a, a nice backhanded deal going, and we have a big Chinese meal at Christmas time. Yep. Not um, not in the interest of the client at all. Um, if you're if you're acting for free, allegedly, and I'm, I'm putting the quote marks up there, if you're acting for free for the client, you're not. You're acting for someone else, and you're telling the client you're acting for them. You're getting paid. It is. You've heard the expression "follow the money." Whoever is paying you, that is who you are beholden to. You are legally obliged to act in the interest. It's called your fiduciary duty. You're legally obliged to act in the interest of the person that's paying you not the person you're acting for free. They're the patsy that you're dragging over the line, 50 grand, 100 grand, too much for the property that you're yeah, telling course. them is going to solve all their problems. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Mate, I uh, I think we've hit the point that you really want to um, get home today. Uh, wrapping up today, is there any kind of advice you got for people out there in the market? If, if they're heading out there, what's some things they should be taking as they head out to start to look at properties? Look, Nobody needs to use a buyer's agent um, or, or a buyer's advocate, um, but be aware that every Almost every single vendor has a vendor's advocate. They have an agent working in their interest, and they're playing the game of, from the from the, the vendor's perspective. So that, that's a that's a good idea. But you don't need a buyer's agent. What you need to do is really make sure that you've got um, you, you you understand the due diligence. You understand any particular um, any particular compromises that might affect the property that you're looking at. I've got lists of them that, that I use, and I'll, I'll just mention the obvious ones is things that are on busy roads, things that are in high-density developments, things that are um, uh, under flight paths or or um, uh, in, in any sort of 
flood affected areas. Um, you don't want to go into areas of, uh, of uh, high socioeconomic disadvantage um, unless you're. Uh, yeah, these are all. There's a, there's a market for those sort of properties, but if you're if you're a lay person, you're not developing and, and you're not uh, cognizant of all those risks, then don't take them. Um, you're not you're not getting paid. Um, the, you're not achieving the premium that a, that a property developer gets. That's why they make money is because they take big risks and so they get big rewards when it goes right. But they they're far more cognizant of the risks of of developing in a in a maybe not so desirable area. But they can see the opportunity to do such and such and and, and reap a profit out of that. Uh, whereas as a as a punter just buying a, a unit in a in a building in the back blocks of somewhere uh, that I won't name, but um, you're only asking for trouble. Yep, perfect. Uh, Gareth, where can people find you? Um, you just look up Suburbanite. Just Google Suburbanite uh, or Google my name. Yep, know. all the usual channels too. Yep. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, um, Instagram. But yep. uh, yeah, um, very much just just on Google. You'll Beautiful. find us. There'll be there's dozens of dozens of reviews from from people that have that have worked with us, um, and um, yeah, just love to have a have a coffee or a Zoom and a and a chat to see um, where uh, where you're thinking and if I might be able to give you a bit of advice. Gareth, thanks so much for um, coming in today. Really appreciate your advice. No, thank you. Thanks, Nathan. This podcast is for general information only. It contains brief comments not intended to be the basis for decision making nor to be taken as a substitute for specific advice. Please contact Birdie Wealth to discuss any matters that may be relevant to your individual situation. For more information, go to www.birdiewealth.com.au.